To whom we may concern, why are we still fighting to be considered a human being? Hey everyone, welcome to To Whom I May Concern. I am Lizbeth. And I'm Amos. It's officially election season. NYC is looking for its new mayor. Move out the way, de Blasio. Yeah, it's a lot of black people in the running. I saw that yesterday. So many new people that I didn't even see before. Uh, obviously, it's been Eric Adams Duh. everywhere. Duh. Bad ads everywhere. He's probably going to win, to be honest. But That's scary to me. I mean... I'm indifferent right now. I, I just, it's kind of if he can pull off what he's saying he's trying to pull off, that will be good. But if not, that would be the wrong choice. But it's a lot of people of color running. And AOC had a endorsement. Um, she endorsed some, some other guy that I never heard of yesterday. Some, Adolfo Abreu. Somebody else. Well, Adolfo Abreu, I'm not really sure how to say it in English, but he is running for the 14th district which is where i live and i'm voting for him i mean this year new york city has like a new voting system which is the ranking it's one through five and you bubble in like who you want first second third fourth and fifth and i was kind of annoyed at that that even passed i didn't vote for that i voted no for that also this is the election that a lot of people didn't realize that there was questions on the back side of the ballot and the majority won and now it's ranked one through five or one through whatever amount of candidates there are um but bernie sanders and aoc endorsed him yesterday and i was really excited because i feel like he brought a lot more to the table than the rest of the candidates and a lot of the other candidates are one of them i read their interview they asked him what his endorsements were and he was like i think the best endorsement is the people that are backing me up like a fancier way to say that he has zero endorsements <laughs> but i i've been trying to look into the mayor candidates i don't know who to vote for anymore diane morales really disappointed me she was my first choice i don't know uh, she fired most of her staff after they did a walkout because they wanted to unionize and one of the things that she's pushing for is for employees to have more benefits and unionizing is one of like the biggest movements that people have done. Um, one of the biggest movements in unions was the Cesar Chavez movement for the farmers. And the fact that she just completely shut them up and fired them is beyond unacceptable to me. Um, if you're going to speak, practice what you preach. But other than that, you guys already know how my stance on Andrew Yang and Eric Adams is on... I don't know how I feel about a police officer being in charge of New York City, especially like when we've seen men like Eric Gardner pass away in the hands of NYPD. And he wants to fund more police and he wants to bring the cops back into emergency medical crisis. I'm definitely not voting for him. I mean, he's a question mark. That's why I keep saying he's really just a question mark because we don't really know if he can actually handle the police situation or make the police situation better than it is now. And there's a possibility that he can. I'm personally not looking to vote for him, but like... I had this conversation with you in the past and I mentioned how I have a strong gut feeling that Eric Adams might win because we saw it during the Obama administration where people didn't even know what Obama had to offer. 
but people were voting for him because he was black. And I think it's really exciting seeing people represent us and who we are as people of color. But people just kind of jump to the conclusion that they're going to do what's best for us just because they're like us skin wise. Which is very accurate. And that's not the most healthy way to look at it because they are still politicians. They have to do a certain job. They can't do certain things that everything is not going to help a community. There's going to be things I do, things I don't. Just like with, uh, what, who, Reagan? It was Reagan, right? Helping different communities. Not oh, everybody. We're going to talk about that later. Yeah, no one candidate is going to do everything that everyone wants or a community wants. They're going to have things that go against the community and things that favors the community. So it's not one size fit all in politicians. So that's no, not gonna, absolutely not. No, yeah, that's not going to happen. I see that AOC has been endorsing like everyone. <laughs> that's the problem. So we don't know who the heck. No. OK, first off, I think that she's endorsing people for different districts. Here in New York City, we're having a bunch of different city council members get elected in different areas. So New York City, a lot of the people are getting replaced. So like, for example, just the Bronx, we have how many districts? And then on top of that, we're voting for mayor. On top of that, also here in the Bronx, I'm pretty sure we're voting for attorney general of the Bronx. And I think we're also voting for Bronx borough president. So how many people do you have to like? There's five different boroughs. So, of course, she's going, you're going to see her endorse multiple people because they're all for different positions. The person she endorsed us against Adams is Maya Wiley, another black person, a black lady. Um, I didn't hear about her until yesterday. And then that's when I started seeing so many black people. I'm like, what is this? But, yeah, she endorses her. Oh, I just I just looked her up. I know who she is. Okay. But he's still in the lead, not by a whole bunch, but he got the lead. Is he in the lead? I heard that Catherine Garcia was in the lead. And Andrew Yang, I know he's like losing a lot of the younger vote. Oh, wait, no. Yeah, you're right. Eric Adamson's in the lead. Wiley jumps in second after AOC endorsement. Okay. She's the direct competition so far. So I feel like every week this changes. So yeah, my mom got an email. They're basically telling all union workers to vote for Eric Adams. Or they're suggesting that you're like, yo. Wait, yeah, I was about to say, you're not supposed to tell yeah. someone who to vote for. Anyway, we have a holiday coming up soon. It's divided the nation for centuries. We wanted to break down the topic because it's led to hate and oppression well into our current 2021. But first, let's take a trip back to the beginning. The textbooks always say slavery began 400 years ago, August 1619. When the White Lion, an English privateer commanded by John Jope, sailed into Point Comfort and dropped into James River. Virginia colonist John Rolfe documented the arrival of the ship and 20 and odd Africans on board. It is believed the first Africans brought to the colony of Virginia were Kimbundu-speaking peoples from the kingdom of Ndongo, or Angola. The captives marched several hundred miles to the coast to board the San Juan Bautista, one of at least 36 transatlantic slave ships. The ship embarked with about 350 Africans, but hunger and disease took a toll. About 150 captives died. Then when the San Juan Bautista approached what is now Veracruz, Mexico, in the summer of 1619, it encountered two ships, the White Lion and the Treasurer. The crews stormed the slave ship and seized 50 to 60 of the remaining Africans. Afterwards, the pair sailed for Virginia. 
As noted by Ralph, when the white line arrived in Hampton, Virginia, the Africans were offloaded and bought for food. Governor Sir George Yearly and head merchant Abraham Piercy acquired the majority of the captives, most of whom were kept in Jamestown, America's first permanent English settlement. American colonies in 1619 are now a focal point in history. The day has become synonymous for slavery's roots, despite captive Africans likely being present in the Americas in the 1400s and 1500s, in the region that would become the United States. Prior to 1619, hundreds of thousands of Africans, free and enslaved, aided the establishment and survival of colonies in the Americas and the New World. They also fought against European oppression and, in some instances, hindered the systematic spread of the colonization. Christopher Columbus Oh my lord, why would you (laughs) (laughs) Christopher Columbus likely transported the first Africans to the Americas in the late 1490s on his expedition to the island of Hispaniola, which is Haiti in Dominican Republic. The exact status of whether free or enslaved remained disputed. But the timeline fits with what is known of the origins of the slave trade. The first example we have of Africans being taken against their will and put on board European ships would take the story back to 1441, says Michael Guasco, a professor at Davidson College and author of Slaves and Englishmen, Human Bondage in the Early Modern Atlantic World. In 1441, the Portuguese captured 12 Africans in Cabo Branco, modern-day Mauritania in North Africa, and brought them to Portugal as enslaved people. In the region that would become the United States, there were no enslaved Africans before the Spanish occupation of Florida in the early 16th century, according to Linda Haywood and John Thornton, professor at Boston University and co-authors of Central Africans, Atlantic Creoles, and the Foundation of America's 1585 to 1660. There were significant numbers who were brought in as early as 1526, says Haywood. That year, some of these enslaved Africans became part of the Spanish expedition to establish an outpost in South Carolina. They rebelled, preventing the Spanish from founding the colony. But the uprising didn't stop the inflow of enslaved Africans to Spanish Florida. Enslaved Africans may have been on board Sir Francis Drake's fleet when he arrived at Roanoke Island in 1586 and failed to establish the first permanent English settlement in America. Him and his cousin, John Hawkins, made three voyages to Guinea and Sierra Leone and enslaved between 1,200 and 1,400 Africans. While Haywood and Thornton acknowledged 1619 remaining a key date for slavery in America, they also argue that focusing too much on the first enslaved people at Jamestown can distort our understanding of history. It does so by failing to understand that the development of slavery was a gradual process and that the laws other than English laws applied, said Thornton. In 1619, as codified by law, slavery did not yet exist in Virginia or elsewhere in the United States. But any question about the status of black people in the colonies was made clear with the passage of the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705, a series of laws that stripped away legal rights and legalized the dehumanizing nature of slavery. During slavery, the United States was drastically divided economically in the North and the South. The North thrived solely based on income primarily from manufacturing and industry. The South's economy was largely based on a large-scale farming. Enslaved Black folks were responsible for all labor, including growing crops like cotton and tobacco. In all Northern states, slavery was completely abolished between 1774 and 1804. And then in 1830, the abolitionist movement officially began in the North. 
Confederates began to fear that slavery would soon be coming to an end, which would have an impact on their largest source of income. Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860, causing seven southern states to secede and form the Confederate States of America. Boo! <laughs> Lord. Four other states joined them soon after. For decades prior, tension between the North and South grew, as they could not agree on the topic of slavery, states' rights, and westward expansion. In 1861, a few months after the presidential election, the United States entered what would be America's bloodiest and most divisive conflict, the Civil War, after the Confederate States bombarded Union soldiers at Fort Sumter. On June 19, 1865, the last enslaved people were liberated by the Emancipation Proclamation Executive Order after the Confederates surrendered. In it, it read, All persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state the people whereof shall be then, thenceforward and forever free. Today, this day is known as Juneteenth, or formerly known as Jubilee Day. This bill is what Abraham Lincoln's presidency is most known for. It outlawed slavery in Texas, among other Confederate states that rebelled against the Union. However, it did not apply to the slave states that remained in the Union because Lincoln didn't want to lose his allies. I want to mention that I didn't know prior to doing this research, that Texas was actually the last state liberated because there was no form of communication unless people hand-delivered a note through horses. So all the way on the East Coast, slaves had already been liberated, but Texas was the last to know because that's where the United States almost basically ended because that was far west of what the states were. I mean, it's kind of fitting. Texas... See what they're doing now, everything they're oh, doing. Texas. Against, it just seemed like people's rights is just not worthy to Texas. I don't know what they on. But. We'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get back. Slavery continued in these states for a few more months. Black men were finally allowed to enlist in the United States military. Those who remained as property to white owners could now flee north to be free. Roughly half a million escaped across Union lines. Slavery officially became outlawed by the 13th Amendment on December 6, 1865, six months after the Emancipation Proclamation became active. Two years later, the Reconstruction Act of 1867 was passed. It required Southern states to uphold the 14th Amendment, which granted equal protection of the Constitution for former slaves. Three years after Reconstruction began, the 15th Amendment went into effect. It guaranteed the citizens' right to vote and could no longer be denied on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Black men would go on to win election to Southern state governments and even the U.S. Congress, like Joseph Rainey. After the Civil War, Black folks were getting arrested for minor things such as loitering. Does that sound familiar? They were even being portrayed as criminals in the entertainment business. It was a tactic to instill hate into the viewers. We even have stories like Emmett Till, a young 14-year-old boy that was mutilated and lynched after being wrongfully accused of sexual harassment by a white woman in Mississippi. Many former slave owners did not want to accept that slavery had been abolished and refused to follow new amendments that protected black people. Many whites did not want to be equal to a black man. In fact, they were so angry that they began to physically assault and even kill those who had been liberated in the South. White supremacists were eager to be the superior race and tried to ensure the survival of the plantation agriculture. This is where you get the first clan, 
On December 24, 1865, the Ku Klux Klan was founded in the state of Tennessee. This hate group stemmed from Confederate followers that believed slavery should stick around and believed whites should be valued at a higher level than them. <laughs> Violence was a daily obstacle African Americans had to face. Black schools were vandalized and destroyed. White people assaulted, tortured, and lynched black folks at night. By the end of the year, Mississippi and South Carolina introduced the first black codes. In Mississippi, black people were required to have written evidence of employment and would be forced to forfeit earlier wages and get arrested if they left before reaching the end of the contract. South Carolina's law barred black people from holding any job other than farming or becoming a servant. This restriction was lifted if they paid $10 to $100 in annual taxes, which was nearly impossible because they already were making low wages, if any at all. Black codes were passed by a political system that black people did not voice. They were enforced by all-white police and state militia forces, which was usually made up of Confederate veterans of the Civil War. At the start of the 1880s, big cities in the South were not completely indebted to the Jim Crow laws, and Black Americans found freedom in them. This led to substantial Black populations moving to the cities, and as the decades progressed, white city dwellers demanded more laws to limit opportunities for African Americans. Public parks were forbidden for African Americans to enter, and theaters and restaurants were segregated. Segregated waiting rooms and bus and train stations were required, as well as water fountains, restrooms, building entrances, elevators, cemeteries, even amusement park cashier windows. Which, what the fuck? Like, cemeteries? Like, they're already dead. Like, who gives a shit? Oh, I my mean, God. like, uh, slave houses and stuff, you know how they had to bury their own families, and, like, usually it wasn't marked graves. Like, even now, if you don't have money to pay for a tombstone or anything like that, it will be an unmarked grave. So, like, okay. that was very common. If you have, like, an old family member with, like, slave quarters, they usually have their own cemetery in, like, the yards unmarked. It's just, like, you know oh. where you put people. I didn't know so, yeah. that. I have a question yeah. for you, though. Now that you mentioned that, I know that your family, uh, you can cut this out. No, I'm not cutting this out. Okay. I know that your family has had a former slave quarters. Yeah, it's in uh, North Carolina. Yeah. So now I'm wondering, uh, are there unmarked graves yeah. on that property? Yeah. yeah. In the back where the slave house, where the, oh, uh, the quarters are. It's like the little, like the, the house itself is very small. Like the one in, uh, on your side, that, that place with the, with the, is it Dykeman? Yeah, the, the Dykeman farmhouse, which we visited. Yeah, like the ceilings are very low and the stairs are small, stuff like that. It has two stories and stuff, but it's just a very small house. And then in the front yard is like the unmarked graves. But obviously they know who it is. So who lives in this house? It's just in the back. Um, Now my grandfather lives there because my great grandmother used to live in the house next to the road. Like they built the house and all that in front, close to the road. But like the quarters is like, you have the new house, and then you go on the road towards the back. It's almost like you got to keep going into the thing. It's like a field behind the house. It's a big property. And then the house is way in the back. You can see it, but it's like about a football field's length from the road. Then you have the, the graves, like the uh, tombstone or like the site in the front. It's no tombstones, but... That's so... Cr I never knew that. That's That's insane. Yeah, and then across the road, literally, the road is, it's like a highway type of road, but it's because it, it's down south, so, like, their road's a little different. It's like a highway, but it's like a local road, but it's not local. It's like, you got the house, then across the road, which is about 15 feet wide, you got the cotton field. That's where I was picking cotton. I'm just, I'm, look. Oh, my God. 
I feel like I don't know why I feel like that's a flex. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> So your family definitely stems from like cotton and tobacco pickers? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely slaves. And I met my, well, I knew my great grandmother until she passed away. We used to see her every year from then. I knew generations. As far as going great grands, I knew them generations. Okay, so we got a little bit off topic, but I, I'm really happy that you were able to share that. Um, I don't know. It's just really fascinating hearing, like, I know there's a lot of trauma instilled into like family history. But even just being able to like visit family and have it's literally a historical home. It's incredible. I mean, it's not a landmark. So I think it, it can be taken down. And once if nobody wants to move into the house after my grandfather and anybody, like if nobody in the family moves to the house, then we're probably going to lose the property. So but yeah, let's get back to the reading. Laws forbade blacks from living in white neighborhoods. Other segregated areas were phone booths, hospitals, asylums, jails, residential homes for the elderly and handicapped, and public pools. Some states would go as far as requiring separate textbooks for black and white students. Again, I really want to have an episode where we discuss the access of education that different neighborhoods have because this is still very relevant today. But in our first episode, we briefly mentioned that Henrietta Lacks attended a black school and her route crossed paths with an all-white school and she experienced hate crimes like getting rocks thrown at her. She was just one black student out of many that would attend these schools and basically deal with all of these hate crimes. During the years of segregation, blacks and whites living under the same roof was forbidden. Marriage was obviously a crime in most southern states as well. If they refused to obey any of the rules, they would be physically beat, go to jail, or even get killed. People obviously grew tired of this. Moving to the 1940s, the rise of the civil rights movement began. Activists joined forces and fought against social injustice. In the midst of making history, they were labeled as criminals by white media. Again, sounds familiar. Some of the most known are Malcolm X, Ida B. Wells, Rosa Parks, John Lewis, James Baldwin, and most importantly, MLK, who was the face of the civil rights movement. From refusing to give up their seat on a bus to marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma to sharing a dream at the March on Washington, a collective of movements sparked up debate that would soon lead to change. On June 11, 1964, President John F. Kennedy proposed his report to the American people on civil rights where he saw legislation that would give all Americans the right to be served in facilities that are open to the public, as well as protected a person's right to vote. Kennedy would never see this bill go into effect, since he was assassinated just five months after he introduced it. It was officially illegal after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed into the law by Lyndon B. Johnson. After 100 years, legal segregation was finally over. But of course, many were not happy. In the 1970s, President Nixon began to coin the term the war on crime and the war on drugs. Boo! Oh, my lord. <laughs> he began to push for law and order by blaming the rise of crime on the civil rights movement and anti-war movements. Nixon began to pin the drug use on people of color to ideally kill two birds with one stone, the hippies and the blacks. Incarceration began to rise steadily for the first time in the U.S. history. After Nixon, Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president and in 1982 declared the war on drugs. Mass incarceration became an even bigger issue because instead of tackling addiction as a mental health crisis, it was tackled as a crime, and it still is being tackled as a crime. Folks caught with a single ounce of crack cocaine would spend the same amount of time in prison as those who were arrested for 100 ounces of powder cocaine. 
This meant that Black and Hispanics were the ones being searched, arrested, and prosecuted for life sentences. Whites were not being given the same sentences. Still very relevant today. That's um, the Black Codes. Yeah, still active. I mean, you have laws like stop and frisk that was banned a few years ago, but I've mentioned multiple times on this podcast that I was stopped and frisked so many times in my neighborhood just for literally walking home from the train station after work. But I look too sketchy because I'm brown and it's dark outside. So I got patted down. I got pressed against the wall, checked between like my crotch, checked my bra, everything. Very invasive because, again, I'm a brown girl at night. What am I doing outside? And I got stopped and frisked many times with my friends as well. If you go to Manhattan, you never really saw that. And Manhattan is predominantly white. Yeah, I guess you can say I'm one of the luckier people or the more fortunate people. I haven't been stopped and frisked that much. <laughs> that much? <laughs> not as gonna, much. I thought you were going to say you were stopped and frisked at all. I was going to say, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not possible. That's not possible. <laughs> but like, it hasn't been that much. It's, it's been every time I've been in the car with Daniel. Um, it's been once or twice when I was on my block, but not really that much. It was just that one time that I got stopped when I was 15. Going to get some medicine for my mom at the pharmacy, which was right down the block under the train station. Let me guess, you were wearing a hoodie. Wearing a hoodie. It was about 70 degrees outside. I could wear a hoodie. I paid for it. Yeah, I'm walking across the street and I see one. I I said this before. I see one cop kind of walking from my left side, walking towards me. Not directly. It didn't look like he was walking directly towards me. It just looked like he was walking across the street. But he was looking like I saw the look on his face. I'm looking at him like, why he looking like that? They were all undercover. So he had a whole bunch of padding basically they have their vest under the clothing he just looked very bulky i was like why what is he walking over here i just kept him moving and then somebody was calling for me i'm like what the heck i think he was calling for me then i looked at him and i saw a couple more cops behind him and then some other cops came from behind me and they surrounded me then was asking me what is in the bag they're like what's in the bag what you doing what's your hood on what was like, in the bag amos <laughs> medicine the heck for my mom <laughs> And he was like, why you got your head on? It's hot or whatever. You look yeah, sketchy. About, yeah, I had about four or five layers on. So what y'all talking about? I'm like, why y'all got these layers on? <laughs> I should have said that. I was confused that person. Then I started laughing in their face. I'm not doing anything. Like, I, I didn't say anything. I was just laughing. Is this really happening? That's what I'm thinking. I literally just came outside because my mom asked me to go get something. I wouldn't even been out there if she didn't ask me to go to the pharmacy. I was chilling at home. I guess me not being out so much, like being in the hood and stuff that much. That's why I don't get stopped and frisked so much. I, I haven't been stopped and frisked as much. but I mean, yeah. laws like stop and frisk were banned here in New York City. But technically, it still kind of happens. No, like it, if, if we walk into like a store, security guard or an employee will follow us around. And if they think we're stealing, usually people are being followed are black and brown people. But white people are not being followed the same way that we are. Even if we're not stealing, do you ever go in a store and you feel like, you have to show your hands to the camera because like, oh my God, what if they think I'm stealing? I have that tendency of kind of feeling guilty without even doing anything. But yeah, if an employee thinks that you're stealing, they can basically, by law, they can check you. So that's another form of stop and frisk that exists today. I don't know. I guess that's the positive of being Black. A lot of stuff, like we desensitize to a lot of things. Obviously, you found trauma in certain things. I'm pretty sure it happens to you a lot. I'm sure of it. Obviously, being a black male is every single time. So it's, that's just life. I can care less. I don't care about anybody's opinion. I don't care if y'all think I'm stealing. It's whatever. I can care less. Kind of sad, though, that you got so desensitized from it. 
Yeah, it really doesn't bother me. I, don't, I ain't scared about. I ain't scared of nothing. <laughs> If you walk down the streets of Manhattan, you will see at least one American flag on every block. And a friend from Europe actually pointed this out to me. I never noticed. I guess I'm just so used to it. But every single block in Manhattan, you will see one little flag or big flag. They're usually big. But these are the true patriots of the nation. And en route to the goal of being the best nation, technically we are number one. 25% of the world's prisoners are incarcerated here in the States. That means one out of every four inmates are here in the U.S. That's a population of 2.12 million as of 2020. Although we celebrate Juneteenth, the 13th Amendment loophole of slavery being constitutional as a form of punishment for a crime has been abused well into the 21st century. The ratio of whites to people of color in prison is extreme. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, in 2018, 33% of state prisoners are black, 30% are white, and 23% are Hispanic, meaning that 56% of the prison population is black or Hispanic compared to the 23% that is Caucasian. With the focus of criminally driven politics from the decades past, when Bill Clinton came to office in 1993, his race was run on influence by the stances of Nixon and Reagan. Boo! Oh my lord. After the murder of Polly Class that same year, under Clinton, the three-strike rule was passed in California. This means that if a person was convicted of three felonies, they were essentially mandated life in prison. A lot of the prisoners that were in jail in California for minor stuff, (laughs) that's not even, I wouldn't say minor things, but to them at the time, rape was a minor felony and they only had one count of rape. They would be released from jail. People that were caught with larger amount of marijuana three times were being released from jail because so many people had three felonies already under their belt. So they had to automatically be sent to life in prison. And today in 2021, California is still one of the states with the most overpopulated prisons. And it's all thanks to Bill Clinton's three strike law. And we're still struggling with that today, almost 30 years later. But let's get into prison labor. On average, prisoners make anywhere from 90 cents to $4 in a day. That's not even minimum wage for an hour anywhere in any state. I believe the lowest minimum wage in the states is probably $7 an hour. $4 is what some inmates make in an entire day. Inmates have been exploited by big companies, some which you may consume on a daily or weekly basis. If you ate at McDonald's in the past... Inmates produced the frozen food and processed the beef for the patties, the bread, milk, and chicken products. It is unclear if they still rely on prison labor in 2021. Starbucks indirectly benefited from their subcontractor signature packaging solutions that has a history with hiring Washington state prisoners to package the holiday coffees. Though as of June 2020, Starbucks claims to have zero tolerance policy on prison and forced labor. A spokesperson for Walmart said that they are still contracting companies that use voluntary prison labor for packaging. So why do big corporations still hire inmates? Cheap labor. It is the same reason that they would send something off for production in third world countries. But in this case, it will be stamped as made in the USA. Yeah, I did not know the made in the USA was prison. I mean, it can be other things, but like even if you go to the dollar store, sometimes they'll have entire shirts or entire hats. Made in the USA, and it's only a dollar. 
New Balance is definitely made in the U.S. Um, and now for voters' rights. <sighs> Today we have some women like Stacey Abrams that are fighting every day to combat voter suppression and amen to her because she has done so much. There are no fees like those forced on low-income citizens a few decades ago, but we see ballot counting machines magically crash and not get fixed at elections, which is what happened during the election where Stacey Abrams ran. We see voters get turned away hours before the polls are even set to close. These acts of gerrymandering occur in predominantly Black and Brown communities. As stated earlier, the 15th Amendment protects every citizen's right to vote and prohibits the federal government and each state from denying their vote. But in June of 2019, the lovely U.S. Supreme Court ruled that federal judges do not have the power to address partisan gerrymandering, even if it ends with results that are reason, and I quote, reasonably seem unjust. On June 8th, 2021, Texas Democrats began to do fierce voter registration drives that targeted over 2 million eligible Texans that will likely vote Democratic, most of whom are young, Hispanic, and Black people. This push began after Texas Governor Greg Abbott proposed Senate Bill 7, which would cut back polling hours, reduce access to mail-in voting, and give more authority to partisan poll watchers. Under this bill, you can't even give voters waiting in line water. This is all to discourage people from voting and simply going home. In late May of 2021, the Democratic Party staged a walkout from the House of Chamber in Austin, Texas. Good for them. This caused an issue because there were not enough lawmakers in the room to meet the minimum requirements to vote and pass a bill. The strike ultimately blocked the voter suppression law from passing. Texas Governor Abbott was not happy and threatened to withhold paychecks of those who walked out. Which is 100% illegal, but okay. Look, the <laughs> law doesn't apply to certain people when it's time to do whatever they want to. So White people, white men. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Like always, we will be providing links where you can donate. This week, we encourage you to donate to the Innocence Project, who has successfully overturned 375 convictions through DNA-based exonerations as of February 25th, 2021. I learned about them through the podcast Wrongful Conviction, which I will also leave a link for. Their mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. We also want to shout out the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU. Not only do they fight against voter suppression, but they also fight for immigrant rights, LGBTQ rights, women's rights, civil rights, and everything in between. And before we go, we just a reminder that New York is one of the states having an election right now, which we discussed earlier, and you can vote early. Small elections are the most important because these are the people that will represent you as a community to the higher ranked in office. If you aren't sure where to vote, you can use the link in the bio to find your designated poll site. You can also learn about New York's new ranked choice voting system. Thank you for listening and grab a friend or take a date to the polls. Go vote. Bye-bye. <laughs>